Good morning, Grace Redeemer Church. Um, before I pray, I just want to say I would be remiss um, to not acknowledge just how much I miss us being together. And it is nice to just hear the voice of Peter and I, but I prefer, I prefer um, when we're all together. The, there's a hymn that comes to mind. It says, Blessed be the tie that binds our heart in Christian love. The fellowship our spirit finds is like to that above. I miss and I long for um, that heavenly time. Um, if we can all open up our Bibles to John chapter 12. Those who are present, if you could say amen when you get there. Thanks, boss. Our passage will be out of John chapter 12, verses 12 to 36. And what is, what is this about? Peter's already mentioned it to you. Karen already mentioned to you this whole reality of um, Palm Sunday. And this passage captures that scene in Jesus' life. It reads as follows. Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, We would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm asking you to bring us up to your throne. I'm asking you to give us a sight, Lord God. Let your presence come down upon us in our individual homes and even in this sanctuary. For where you are, Lord God, where you are, there is power. Where you are, there is peace. Where you are, there is everything sufficient for life and godliness. Lord, we are in a unique time in our history. Help me, God, help me to talk about this passage. Help me to open it up in a way that speaks to men's hearts and moves us, Lord God. Don't pass me by. Work on me. Work on us that we would behold your light and behold your glory and sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Amen. What have we come to? We've come to Passion Week or Holy Week. This is a week in the life of Jesus Christ that was intense. That's the word that comes to mind. The entire life of Jesus Christ was intense. As a child, he knows that he's living to die. So he knows for a fact, the life I'm about to live is is a very unique one. But he focuses this week. He locks in on his goal. He locks in. He revs the engine. He says it's go time. And it begins with a Sunday. A Sunday when he's coming into Jerusalem after he had raised an old friend from the dead named Lazarus. People are behind him, people are with him, and people are before him. Word comes out that Jesus has left Bethany. He's coming through the Mount of Olives, and he is coming to Jerusalem. And the two, three million people who are there for the Passover are losing their minds. He comes on a donkey with a colt next to it, and the people are holding palm branches in their hands and throwing their jackets, their coats on the ground for his donkey to walk over them. Jesus has never come in such pomp and circumstance. When I reflected on the passage, I thought to myself, what is this like, this Holy Week, this Palm Sunday? And this is what came to mind. What came to mind is that this is Jesus Christ, a genius whose life's work It has now reached its height. And we are now watching the life work of a genius and the passion of a genius. Everything's coming together. From eternity past, he has set his mind to do this, and he is so close to getting it done. When I had that thought, I I, I was reminded of how, how can I communicate this best to you? How can I communicate best to you what it's like to see a genius at work? And I thought of a family friend of mine named Joshua Colas. If you could move the slide to this picture. You're going to see a young kid who somebody thought was me, but it's not. This kid is, now he's like 20, but I knew him growing up. And you see the way he looks, unpretentious, disinterested, happy kid. And that's exactly who he is. I'm I'm privileged and honored to know him. Now, what I didn't understand growing up with him in church is that his dad would tell me, Josh plays chess, but I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Until one day I saw Josh downstairs in a church basement at a table with men surrounding it. 
and him killing everybody one by one. Bang, 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 bang. And I thought, oh, he's pretty good. I still didn't get it. Next slide. This is Josh now. Josh is ranked 2000 in the world. He is the youngest African-American chess um, player ever. He has a full scholarship to Webster University. This is the number one chess team in the country. Josh is a boss. And one time I asked Josh, I said, Josh, what is it like for you playing chess? He said, Dave, this is what it's like. When I sit down, my first move, it's important. It's critical. That's my opening move. But I'm thinking about checkmate. And I move like a surgeon. See, the first picture that you saw was a young boy, <laughs> smile on his face, innocent. But this second picture is genius. And that's what it's like. That's what this week is like. You see genius in Jesus in rare form. You see him all systems going. And this is what I want us to get. This is what I want us to own. I want us to own this. This week, 2,000 years ago, is the light of God shining into man's darkness with such a brilliance and such a passion that it proves that God is for us and not against us. I'll say it again. This week, 2,000 years ago, it was a special week, guys. It's when the light of God shined in our darkness in such a way, with such brilliance, with such genius, with such passion, with such zeal, that it proves once and for all, no matter who doubts, that God is for us and not against us. There are two major points. The first point is light's brilliance. That's verses 12 to 26. And then the second point is light's passion. Each point has subdivisions. We're going to start with light's brilliance. I'm going to read verses 12 to 15. Again, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. What is this brilliance? First thing, the Israelites are people in darkness. Now, can you imagine for a second? I want, you to, I want you to really think what this means to Jesus. He's been waiting for eternity for this moment. How does he perform it? If Jesus had gone to a different city, if he had gone to Rome, if he had gone to the country of Ethiopia, if he had gone to Nigeria, would he have found people? Yes. But would, ha- would they have understood his message? No. When John the Baptist screams, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would anybody get it in those countries and in those cities? No one would. But people need to get the message because Jesus dying on the cross is not enough for people to be saved. In order for people to be saved, he has to die and we have to have faith that he died. So his salvation for us needs us. It implies us. But the danger is that we don't want it. So God, like a genius, understands this. And he creates a people for himself. You remember the story. You remember Abraham. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And what happened with him? He worshiped the moon god, Nana. This man didn't know God. God took him out. God protected him. God made a people around him until they were so large in the land of Egypt that Pharaoh hated them. And what did God do? Like a genius. He knows that these people are in a world of darkness, surrounded by nations that despise God, have buried the truth of God. How is the truth going to come into the world? 
Jesus can't come then. So what does God do? He puts them through 450 years of bondage. Slavery oppresses them. What does that do? That unifies them. That gives them solidarity that they'll need in the land of Canaan as they travel through the wilderness. And he brings his people centuries later into a mighty nation, a nation with an incredible culture that understands sacrifice, that sin demands a sacrifice, a nation that understands that God is one, a nation that understands that we are to be moral and upright. He has prepared a people for himself amidst darkness. And you see it work out geniusly because verse 13, when they see Jesus coming, they don't say, oh man, there's that awesome dude from Nazareth. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 18, verse, Psalm 118, verse 26. They've been singing that Psalm in the Hallel for centuries That's the praise he wants. Give salvation now. If he had gone to Rome, they couldn't have said that. If he had gone somewhere in Africa, he could not, they would not have said that. He has prepared a peculiar people who understand what holiness is, who understand that they have a need, though they are misunderstood in certain respects. But then how does he do it? How does he get these people to carry along? He does it by the word. The second thing, the scriptures are Israel's nightlight. This people that moves throughout time. How do they survive? They do it with the word. Look at verses 16 to 19. It says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. What do I mean that the word of God is Israel's nightlight? Here's what I mean. When you look at verse 16, notice that the disciples did not understand what was happening. They understood that people were thronging around Jesus and they understood him to be a military leader that was to deliver them. They felt the same way. But it was only until after he resurrected, after he was glorified, that the word of God reminded them that what they had done had been prophesied. It says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That emboldened them, that bolstered their faith in the word of God. See, God, guys, he's, he's not just interested in coming into the world. Again, in order to save us, he has to come intelligently. He has to come in a way that men can receive, and he can't do it twice. He cannot come to every successive generation. He cannot come to every people, because what? Well, if he does that, he's only as good as the repeated sacrifices on the Day of Atonement in Israel that happen every year. He can only do this once. And after he comes and he dies, he goes. And it's people's job to move the message forward. You see how he does it? He's a genius. How would we have done it? How would you have done it? You wouldn't have done it this way. You look at the United Nations. Across the street from the United Nations is this this park with this huge staircase. 
And on the staircase, it has uh, the scripture from Isaiah that talks about that we are going to put our uh, spears into the plowshare. It's going to destroy it, and there will be no more war amongst us. Now, the United Nations has that across the street from them. People understand that quote to be connected with the United Nations, and it's really funny. What's funny is that passage is talking about peace that only the blood of Christ brings about. And I have no opposition to what the United Nations does. I think they do incredible work. But for the very fact that that verse sits across the street from them, and every day while they're working, they can see that verse. It's amazing that in their blindness, they don't get to recognize the importance of that verse and how that reality is even to come about. Instead, they pump millions and millions of dollars into the works of men. And yet we're here in pandemic. Then we look to living in the light, verses 20 to 26. I'll read. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for life eternal. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. What have we come to here? What has happened? Well, let me back up and say that when Jesus Christ comes through people and he comes through his word, notice the effect that it has. Notice how when the word of God has come into the world in flesh and the scriptures are owned by a people, the result is pure hatred and pure devotion. On the one hand, you have crowds after him, longing for him. On the other hand, you have Pharisees sitting by and saying, look at this, this isn't working. But then we see something more. We see that this message of salvation, because he has planned it so well, has reached past Jerusalem. It has gone to the Greeks. That's what it says in verse 20, the Greeks come. And notice how Jesus deals with them. It doesn't say that he speaks to them. It doesn't, we don't know if he spoke back to them. Instead, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And what is Jesus doing here? He's giving a universal message. I have the Jews. I have their attention. I have their ear. They have my word. And now I have the Greeks. And now I'm articulating to my disciples that the world, both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, that the entire world needs to understand one thing. No death, no life. No death, no life. Not just for Israel, but for everyone. No death, no life. What is this experience of dying? What is it? When he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, what is it? What is this experience when he says, he who loves his life will lose it? 
He who hates his life will keep it. What is he talking about? Fundamentally, every last one of us are hell-bent on one thing, and it's to preserve our life. We don't kick against the reality that one day we're going to die. So what we try to do is live the best life that we possibly can right here, right now. But what we mean by that when we say that is we mean that we want to make up our own course. We want to chart our own course. We believe in moral autonomy. Not just autonomy, not just autonomy to do whatever you want, moral autonomy, the right to say, this is good and this is bad for me. Jesus comes with a different message. He says, listen, I, the very son of God, have been subordinate to my father. And therefore you must be subordinate to the father as well. I've come to die. And if you're going to be with me, you have to die also. This point is impressive. This point is impressive because it asks the question, who are we? Who do we want to be? When people meet you, who do you, who do you want them to meet? You or Jesus? Do you say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I remember distinctly when, I was, when it was impressed upon me this sense, David has to die. People did not realize as it is with all of us, just how many things we do for our own self-interest, for, for our own self-gain. And I was getting to a point in my life where I can tell that I was quenching the spirit by drawing people to me instead of drawing people to God. I remember distinctly being in college and people coming to my room and asking me for advice on different things, not to give them nice advice. And they say, David, you're so smart. But I remember one day it broke my heart completely when I walked into the cafeteria and this girl comes to me and she says, I want you to meet my friends. And she introduces me this way. She says, hey guys, this is David. He prays for me. He has a relationship with God. And I thought to myself, I've known this girl for three years. And the reason why she's lauding me in front of people is sure, I've helped her. Yes, I've helped her, but... I've never asked her to pray for herself. I've never asked her to read the word. I've never asked her to meet the person that she's crediting me for with glory. It can't be me. It can't be me. Who am I to bring people to? It's got to be Christ. Let it not be me who comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Let it be Christ. Let it not be you who presents yourself to people, but let it be Christ. My friends, in our world today, the reason why the gospel doesn't get spread, the reason why we don't multiply as churches, the reason why there isn't the gospel with power is that we're just too much like ourselves. We're just too much like us. We're shy and afraid to be zealous about God and the things of God and the word of God. Oh, 
Don't you see, guys? Don't you see? In verse 16, when the disciples, they did not understand, but later on when Jesus was glorified, they understand. Don't you see the power of the word? Don't you see that it goes down into the soil like a mustard seed? A little seed and it comes up to a big tree that blesses a lot of people. Oh, we should own that. We should claim that and we should say, I'll die. I'll be that mustard seed. I'll disappear so other people can know me and know Christ through me. To put it in a nutshell, there is far too much individual expression in our world today, especially in the church. There's so much of it. So-and-so's got opinions on this. So-and-so's got opinions on that. I feel this way. No, I feel that way. And we got to realize, my friends, if we had true unity in the blood of Christ, would we look that different? Would our opinions be that different? They won't be in the new Jerusalem. They won't be in heaven. We must die. We must die. We come to the second point called light's passion. Verses 27 to 36. Light's passion is God's heart for mankind's renewed vision. Let's begin with something called burdened with glory. Verses 27 to 33. It reads as follows. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was about to die. Now, what is this burden that Jesus has? It says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What is the trouble? What is the burden? Well, the text says that he's going to glorify God's name. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice comes out of heaven. I've glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, that doesn't exactly help us because it just makes us ask the question, what is the glory? What's the glory? What's the burden? What's this glory and burden that Jesus feels impressed upon now more than anything to have go forth? What is it? This is what I submit to you. When Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, when he says, Father, glorify your name, when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, what it is, the glory of the Son of Man, what it is, the glory of God the Father, is that God would finally prove that he is merciful to mankind. He will finally prove, without a shadow of a doubt, this week, whether we choose to recognize it or not, that he can forgive man's sins. You see, the cross of Christ is rare in what it does. If we want to know that Jesus is almighty, you just look at Genesis 1. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He's almighty. If we want to know that God is good, stay in Genesis 1. He makes everything good. If you want to know that he's omniscient, that he knows everything, you just go a little farther. Go to Genesis 18. Sarah laughs, and she scoffs at the idea of having a child. And God says, 
why are you laughing? She goes, I didn't laugh. He's like, you laughed. You, you definitely laughed. We don't have to go too far. If we want to know that God is just, we just got to read the entire account in the wilderness, the rebellion of Korah and how he dealt with him, how he dealt with Balaam, how he dealt with the fallen angels. But how do we know? How do we know that God will be merciful to us on that last day? How do you know? How do you know that God can forgive your sins? I was on a call with a young woman this week, and she said to me this question, and I praise God for the question. She said to me, David, I said, yes. She said, let me ask you a question. She said, why does God have to be just so that he can be holy? Or another way of putting it is, why does he have to punish our sins in order to be holy? Why can't he just forgive us? And I gave her the classic illustration. I said, imagine you had a judge in your county who just forgave everybody. He didn't punish anybody. Would he be a good judge? She said, no. I said, you see? You see? Now, when it comes to God, in the back of our minds, we hold this thought. We think, God will forgive us. He'll forgive me. But yet on the other end, we live out the reality that I don't think I can be forgiven. So I need to do good things. I know that God is mighty. I know that he's strong. I know that he's intelligent. I know that he's good, but I'm just not sure when I get there on that last day, whether or not I'll cut, I'll be out. What's, what's the phrase? I'll be, uh, uh, I'll be up to par. There you go. <laughs> I'm not sure. Only the cross of Christ proves that Jesus is merciful. Only the cross of Christ proves that God is merciful. And that's what God is trying to prove. This entire time, he's trying to prove in the genius of his plan that you can trust me. You can rely on me to not hold you accountable for the sins that you have done. Don't you see me humbly coming on a donkey? I could come in wrath, but I come on a donkey. Don't you see that even though you throng around me and I can see your heart is fickle and I can see that person doesn't really believe and that person is, is really hostile and they're just trying to impress that girl over there. Yo, I get it. Even then, he doesn't come out in wrath. But we're shy, guys. We're shy to really give our whole heart to God and say, I'm going to trust that when I die and I come before you, you will not hold my filth against me. And that madness drives men to either end, either works righteousness or to deny the reality of sin altogether. People are either going to say, I'm going to work and be better, or they're going to say, sin is a dream. It's false. It just makes you depressed. It's not real, period. Because they refuse to see the cross. The cross of Christ proves, it proves that he will forgive us. And how do we know? How do we know? What does the cross show us? It shows us divine agony. It shows us that he was willing to put himself in our place and take our pain. He was willing to put on our shame that he wasn't going to hold a grudge against us when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And that that sacrifice is eternal. It is a blessed river that runs from one end of the world to the other. There is no end of the world. It's a globe. And it runs, and everybody who decides to walk to that river will be blessed. And they'll have no reason to depart. That blessed song, oh, now I see the cleansing wave, a fountain deep and wide. But then lastly, for light's passion, there's verses 34 to 36. A pure heart 
a sincere heart. Read with me. The crowd spoke up. They're replying to Jesus, telling them. They're replying to this whole experience of hearing a voice from heaven. And the crowd replies, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus Christ's passion, his, his, his zeal, his, his, his sincerity that he carries himself with. It's not completely foreign to us. We know what it is to, to be passionate about something. Just yesterday, I, I was sitting in my bed and plotting and scheming with great passion how I could get a Chick-fil-A number two. Is it possible? What could be done? Do you see? How can it be arranged? Who would I endanger really? (laughs) Is it that bad? (laughs) So we understand passion. We understand what it is for our soul to be troubled. The difference is, is that Jesus' trouble is so pure. It's so sincere. It's undefiled. See, our hearts are carnal, but for Jesus, this pure burden that he has to glorify God's mercy on men, this pure burden that he has is a grace to us. It's a grace to us. It is, it is, it is his light upon us for what we could be. It's an encouragement to us to walk in the light. Can you imagine him after all this work, centuries, centuries he has done this plan. He's concocted this thing to try to get us to come to Christ. He's done all this work. And the only reply the crowd can give him is, who is this son of man? What kind of savior is this? If it's me and I know I'm going to die, I'm going to say to myself, all right, God, I'm going to die. But let me just be disrespectful to them for two seconds, please. Jesus doesn't respond like that. Instead, he pleads with them. He says to them very clearly, you are going to have the light for a little while. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. A lesser man than Jesus, a lesser man than the son of God himself would be absolutely disgusted about how much it has taken, how much it will take, how much fickleness there is in order for men to believe. But not Jesus For though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he was insulted, he did not insult in return. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Let's pray. Come not in terrors as the king of kings but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Tears for all woes, a heart for every plea. Come, friend of sinners, abide with me. Oh Lord, it was on this week that you shined your light in such intensity and such brilliance. It was such a passion. 
that if we would only look, Lord God, scales like the Apostle Paul would fall from our eyes and we would have renewed vision. Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you that you endured our fickleness. We thank you that you were so patient and have been so and will continue to be so patient and kind with us. Lord, we see your heart and how when you approached Jerusalem, you wept, you wept, you wept because you realized that these things were hidden from our eyes, but that did not deter you. A lesser man, yes, but your heart's so pure. Your heart's so pure, you endured the shame. Heavenly Father, let us, let us throng after you in grace and truth. Let us throng after you in spirit and in truth, with sincerity of heart. Jesus, send your light, shine on us. Amen.